Throughout the month of December, we've been looking at the coming Christ. We're looking at Old Testament prophecies. Uh, talked about the Christ coming that really culminated on Christmas Day. And it would seem that this would be the end of it. We should have ended last week when Christ came. But what we can forget, if we're not careful, is that we, as New Testament believers, we also look forward to the coming Christ. Right? That just as the Old Testament believers looked for the day the Messiah would come to the earth, we look for the day that the Messiah would come to the earth. And, and, and since we look for the day, it should influence how we live. But in, in theory, in the Old Testament, their, their belief that Messiah was coming, it was meant to, to challenge them and to change them and they would live a certain way because their God was sending their Messiah. Well, that's just as true, if not more true, in our day. Right? We know that our God is sending His Son back. Now, he's not going to come in the form of a virgin this time. He's not going to come and live a life on the earth and be crucified and die and rise again. When He comes back this time, He's coming back as a conqueror. My Bible reading recently ended in Revelation as I read through the Bible in the year. And if you've read through the book of Revelation, you're like in Revelation 19, Jesus comes back on a white horse with... A sword coming out of his mouth with his robe dipped in the blood of his enemies. I mean, we're talking he comes back as a conquering king, not as a suffering servant. And if we believe that, if we believe Jesus is coming back as the Bible says, then it should influence the way we live our lives. In what way should it influence our lives and what can we do to be prepared for Jesus to come back. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to start reading in verse 13. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 5 and verse 4. So find that. I'm going to stand on the reading of God's Word. First Thessalonians 4 and 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain of the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, I have no need that I write unto you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that you should, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Title of the message this morning is The Still Coming Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we we rejoice in the reality that Jesus is coming back. We look forward to the day when all that is wrong will be made right. When there will be a day where there's no more sorrow, nor crying, no more pain, nor death, nor parting. 
the stain and the pain of sin will be taken away forever. But Lord, as believers, as disciples of Jesus, His return, it means something to us. It means something in how we live today. It means something in how we interact with the lost and the unbelievers. It means something in in how we prioritize our lives and what we do. So as we look at Your Word today, help us to take what we see here and let us apply it to our lives. Help us to live as though Jesus truly was going to come back. Let us believe, as the early church seemed to, that Jesus was coming back imminently, soon. And let us pray, as the Apostle John did at the end of the book of Revelation, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Guide today and fill me with Your Spirit and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Let me speak Your words and Your ways for Your glory. Have Your way in our hearts and our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as Paul writes about the second coming in this passage, he, he does something interesting and yet really important. Right, if you look at verses four, or 13 through 18, Paul talks about what it means when Christ returns. But he talks about what that means for believers. And that section ends with, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But in verses 1 through 3, Paul talks about what Christ's coming would mean for unbelievers. And that section ends with, Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Christ's return does not mean the same things for everyone. His return means one thing for believers and something entirely different for unbelievers. The coming of Christ brings comfort for the believer and judgment for the unbeliever. Now, knowing this should motivate us to live a certain way to prepare for His coming. To make sure we are ready at all times. Now there are three ways from this passage we need to prepare. The first is refuse to be ignorant. About Christ's return. Now notice that's where Paul starts verse 13. I would not have you to be ignorant brethren. Regarding them which are asleep. And it's, he's leading into the coming of the Lord. He doesn't want them to be ignorant of Christ's return. And what it would mean for them as believers. Now when you read Thessalonians 1st and 2nd. You see that they believed sort of in an, what we would call the imminent return of Christ. They truly believed that Jesus could come back at any moment. Now, there was a day in which kind of believers in general lived as though Jesus could come back at any day. We, we believed it could be at any moment, at any time. But that's sort of something that we've gotten away from. The, the Thessalonians, they kind of seemed to believe that Jesus would return for their, in their lifetime. I mean, they were expecting that before they died, Jesus would come back in the ways that Paul had taught them. Which for them, this was an encouraging thought. Because when they came to Christ, they began to suffer. Their lives were generally okay until Paul came to Thessalonica and preached the gospel and they believed. They almost immediately began to suffer for their faith. And that suffering for their faith 
caused them to look forward to the coming of the Lord. They wanted him to come back. They wanted Jesus to return and end their suffering and restore all things. But as time went on and Jesus didn't come back, they began to have questions. And those questions began to trouble them in their life. And what troubled them wasn't what if Jesus doesn't come back. But what would happen when he did? Because they were suffering some pretty severe persecution. And some of this persecution had led to death. But even without persecution leading to death, life leads to death. And they had lost some of their people. They had been Christians long enough that some had died. And they wondered, what happens to the dead when Jesus returns? See, to the Greek way of thinking, one just ceased to exist after you died. There was no real afterlife, so to speak. You just died and that was it. And the Thessalonian believers, they were coming out of that mindset as they came to Christ. And it made it hard for them to understand the reality of the resurrection from the dead. So what they did was they they expected when Jesus came back, those who were alive, they too would go with Jesus. But they were concerned about the dead. Did they go or had they just missed it? Had they suffered for nothing? And this belief, this concern, this question, it increased their grief at the death of a loved one. And what was happening was they grieved the loss of a loved one in exactly the same way the pagans did. And this is a part of what motivates Paul to write this letter. Right? He says this in verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep that have died, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Right? Paul doesn't want them to sorrow as though they had no hope. Now, I always want to point out here, Paul doesn't say not to sorrow over the death of a loved one. Nowhere in the Bible tells us to say that. Tells us not to sorrow. Mourning. The death of a loved one is a natural and normal part of the grieving process. Paul's point is that there is a difference in the way a believer mourns and the way an unbeliever mourns. Or at least there should be. Because the reality is, for an unbeliever, death is a hopeless thing. It is a tragic and terrible end. Because at death, there Their hope, their chances for being saved and receiving the grace of God are gone. And they are heading toward the just and severe judgment of God. There is no hope they will face anything but the wrath of God for their sins. It's hopeless for the one who has died. But it's also hopeless For the unbeliever yet living. For the unbeliever still alive, their loved one is gone, never to be seen again. They haven't gone to a better place. They'll not be reunited in the afterlife. There's nothing. There is no hope of anything good or any reunited or any glad reunion day for that loved one who died having rejected Christ. 
And if the unbeliever still alive has any sort of a Christian background, they know anything about what the Bible says, that would sort of compound the hopelessness because they understand what the Bible says about judgment. And, and whether they believe it or not, they've been raised in it. There's something in the back of their mind saying that may be true. My loved one may now be in hell. If the unbeliever that's alive is a part of a false religion, they, they are deceived and they have no hope. Because there is no hope in anything outside of Christ. If they are atheists or they don't believe in God or see the need for Jesus, then, then there is no hope because their loved one has just died and has passed on. For the unbeliever, the sorrow of death is a hopeless sorrow. Not so for those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ can grieve and hope because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Look at what Paul says in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. Right? Those who believe in Jesus, they do not perish when they die. Rather they, they go to be with Jesus. And according to this. When Jesus returns. They will come with him. Right. And so what that enables is. For those of us who believe. And our believing loved one passes. We mourn. No doubt. But we mourn in hope. They're not in suffering. They're not in sorrow. They're not in pain. There is a glad reunion day coming. We will see them again. We will be with them and with Christ for all of eternity at some point. We who believe in Jesus must not be ignorant about what faith in Jesus means. So we do not grieve as those who have no hope. But... We also cannot be ignorant about the certainty of Christ's return. But look at chapter 5 and verse 4. But ye brethren are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Right? And it goes on and says we are children of the light. We, we as believers are not in darkness. And so the day of the Lord, the return of Christ it should not overtake us, according to Paul. Now, overtake is an interesting word. And it means to come upon or to take hold of by surprise. Now, since we are believers in Jesus, since we know what the Bible says, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. The idea is the day of the Lord, or we're not in darkness, so the, the Christ return should not catch us off guard as it will unbelievers, right? Because unbelievers are in darkness. Christ's return, it will take them completely off guard. Right? We're warned about this. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord, so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, thief in the night pictures, and it's taken from the very words of Jesus Himself, and, and it pictures... His return being sudden and unexpected. Right? So for unbelievers, the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night suddenly and unexpectedly. 
Uh, and in Jesus' writing, or Jesus' teaching, what it meant for the unbelievers was it was going to appear to be any other day. Right? Isn't that what he says? It would be as it was in the days of Noah. Where they were marrying and giving in marriage. And then the flood came and they died. It will be as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. When they were just going through their daily lives and fire from heaven fell. For the unbeliever, they will think this is a normal day that nothing strange is happening. And then suddenly, Christ returns. But for us, it means something different. We're not like unbelievers. We're not in darkness. We're not ignorant of Christ's return. So it doesn't catch us unaware. Now that doesn't mean we know the day or the hour. Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour. But it does mean that we live prepared. Right? Jesus, as he taught about his return, and his return being like a thief in the night, he gave several implications of this for his people, his disciples. He said in Matthew 24, 42 and 44, we were to watch and be ready. Watch, be alert, be looking out. You know, the Bible does give signs of the end. These things will accompany it and it will begin to intensify as it gets there. Jesus says, watch for those things, look for them. Know that your redemption draweth nigh. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 45 through 51, that we were to faithfully do his will all the time. So we won't be caught living recklessly when he returns. Right? He says, you don't know when I'm coming. It will be a surprise. So be on mission. Be doing what I've called you to be doing. Live holy. Live obediently. Don't be carousing and living and wasting your life and be caught off guard like an unbeliever when I arrive. He says in Luke 21, 34 and 35. That we aren't to let the cares and pleasures of this life become a snare. That keep us from being prepared for his return. Now this is a, to me I think the great temptation in our day. Probably more so than in generations before us. Because our lives are fairly easy. The Thessalonians didn't have to worry about the cares and pleasures of life being a snare. Their lives were filled with problems and hurts and hardships because of Jesus. They were not even remotely comfortable in their day-to-day life. They wanted Jesus to come back and end the suffering. But our lives aren't like that. Our lives are air-conditioned and cushioned and padded and streaming video and Social media connected. And and our lives are just generally prosperous. And easy. And comfortable. So the danger for us is to let the cares and the pleasures of this life. Become so great. So important. That we drift off mission. We drift away. And we're not prepared for his return. Jesus taught his disciples should prioritize their lives around his will and his mission. That our lives were meant to be lived doing his will constantly. Always on mission, looking for opportunities to seek and to save the lost as Jesus did. He didn't want his followers to waste their lives on unimportant things. 
He didn't want his followers to get caught up in distractions the world would offer and end up straying away. He wanted them to live in light of his return, to wake up every day and say, it could be today. So I'm going to live as though Jesus were coming back today. Jesus is coming back. And we have to live like he is. But the question is, do we? When was the last time you woke up in the morning and said, today could be the day Jesus is coming back? And since it could be today, I am going to prioritize my life in such a way that if it is, I'm caught doing His will. I mean, if I'm being honest, I, I don't wake up like that most days. right? I mean, if, if I'm... If I'm not teaching about Jesus' return, or if it's not a part of one of my daily Bible readings, the sad but honest reality is I don't think about it that much. Because my life is pretty comfy. My life is pretty easy. There's always tomorrow, or the tomorrow after that, or the tomorrow after that. And I I doubt I'm alone in this. But a question. What if? I mean, well, no, the question. Do we we even want Jesus to come back? I mean, if, if we were given the choice, you pray, come Lord Jesus and I'm coming today. Would we pray that? Is that what we want or are our lives so comfortable and so easy that deep down in the dark places of our hearts we don't talk about around other people? We really don't even want Jesus to come back all that much. Wait till I'm old and feeble and I can't go and do anything. Wait until my life is difficult, till I get cancer and it's at stage five and there's no cure. Come back then. But right now while I'm healthy, right now while my life is good, Come not, Lord Jesus. Scripture teaches me it is not meant to be that way. We are meant to long for His return. We are meant to pray for His return. We are meant to live like Jesus could return at any moment. The early church turned the world upside down and lived the way they did because they believed Jesus could come back in their lifetime. And they didn't want to be caught Drifting and doing wasteful things in Christ returned. I'm afraid the church in our day misses out on doing many important things and focuses on many unimportant things because we are ignorant of Christ's return. We must refuse to be ignorant of Christ's return. Because Jesus is coming back. And His return, it means comfort for the believer. But it means judgment for the unbeliever. This leads us to the second way we prepare. Let's believe what Scripture says about Christ's return. If you want to have a good discussion on theology with someone, ask them... 
what will happen after you die or how the world will end. A person doesn't even have to be a believer to have an opinion on those two issues. But as believers, we don't have to speculate on what will happen after death or what will, how the world will end. All of this has been revealed to us. Look at verse 15. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. But Paul explains what he's saying about the coming of the Lord. It's not his own invention. This isn't his idea. He didn't make this up. But what he is revealing to them comes from the word of the Lord. Right? So scripture is and will always be the foundation of our faith. Everything we, we know and believe about God, or Jesus, or salvation, eternity, the end times, it, it comes to us from Scripture. It always does. It has been revealed to us. Right? And so our job, it's not to speculate on the end times. It's not to, to guess what happens after death. It, it is to take the Bible and say, here's what the Word of God says. And so this is what I believe. Now, in verse 15 through 17, Paul lays out a sequence of events leading to the resurrection of the dead. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So the sequence of events of how the end comes. But first, Jesus descends from heaven with a shout. Scripture reveals that there is a, an order to the resurrection of the dead. The first fruits of the resurrection was Jesus himself. His resurrection from the dead was the, the first one, the picture of all that would happen after, is what 1 Corinthians 15 and 20 through 23 tells us. Second, Jesus has risen, Jesus returns, then the resurrection of those who are dead at Christ returns. Right? This is what it says, we who are alive and remain will not prevent, the, which prevent those which are asleep. And he elaborates on verse six, in verse 16, by saying that the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then those who are alive and remain will be called up to meet them in the air. So the order. Jesus rose then he ascended. Then one day Jesus is going to come back. And it's going to be in a way that everybody sees. The sky will split. He will descend. The trump will sound. The angels will shout. And then the graves will empty. And then they will rise and then they will meet the Lord in the air. And then those who are alive and remain, they too will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, Peter, or Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And we will rise to meet them in the air. And there we will live forever with the Lord and with our loved ones. This is that, that glad reunion day. Now this is what happens for believers. And this is what we're told in Scripture. So we don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to make up an idea. This is what God has said through Scripture about what will happen for believers when Jesus returns. We don't have to, to do anything. Our job here 
is not to try to elaborate it or not to try to make it overly complicated. Our job is just to believe what the Bible says. This is how it will be for believers. And that part's pretty easy if you're a believer because we, we like this. This is great news. Right? The dead are going to rise. We're going to be with them forever. We go to be in heaven. I mean, glory, right? The Bible also tells us what will happen for unbelievers on this day. Look at chapter 5. The times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman, and they shall not escape. Now, in verse 2, Paul refers to this day as the day of the Lord. And it would be easy enough for us to understand the day of the Lord as just another way of saying the return of Jesus. And that's partially true. It does refer to the return of Jesus. But in Scripture... The day of the Lord has a very particular meaning to it. This isn't the only time this phrase is used. Every time this phrase is used, it means something specific for the unbeliever. Listen to how one of my commentaries explains the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a period of time when God will deal with wicked men directly and dramatically in fearful judgment. Today, a man may be a blasphemer of God, an atheist, can denounce God and teach bad doctrine. Seemingly God does nothing about it. But the day designated in Scripture as the day of the Lord is coming when God will punish human sin and He will deal in wrath and in judgment with a Christ-rejecting world. See, the day of the Lord is not just when Jesus returns to claim His people. It is also the time when He will bring judgment on those who have Rejected him. You see this all throughout Scripture. There are, according to my study, about 32 references to the day of the Lord in Scripture. And unless I missed one, which I don't think I did, they all deal with God's judgment on unbelievers in one way or another. And so, just in case we didn't catch the, the reference day of the Lord and knew it meant judgment on the unbeliever, Paul elaborates in verse 3. And they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. First, he says, it will catch them unaware. They will say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction falls. We've already talked about this time coming as a thief in the night, but Paul elaborates on it a bit. The unbelieving world will say it is a time of peace and safety. It will be just another day. Everything will seem to be okay, and then suddenly judgment will fall Upon them. Now Paul describes this judgment as sudden destruction. Which to me sounds very, very serious. Right? And again, this is where believing scripture, this is where it's important. Sudden destruction doesn't sound like everybody goes to heaven, does it? Sudden destruction doesn't sound like they'll be chastised a little bit and then be allowed into heaven, does it? Sudden destruction doesn't sound like everybody makes it or it's okay how we live or what we believe. We can just do what we want and it all works out in the wash. Sudden destruction sounds like God is going to do harsh things to these people. Paul elaborates more on this in 2 Thessalonians. So flip over 
a couple of pages to 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 through 9. Verse 7, he says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Now, he's still talking about what's going to happen when, because they're being troubled. But notice the focus is on Jesus coming. When the Lord comes from heaven with His mighty angels. And when He comes, He talks about, Paul talks about those who are going to face sudden destruction. Right in verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance, I'll talk about that in a minute, on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sudden destruction comes upon those who do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel, have not repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. Now I point this out because culture around us tells us that if there is a heaven, good people go there. And if there is a hell, really bad people go there. And culture, part of what makes this a problem is culture defines good and bad people different. How we might define a good person in Guyman, Oklahoma might not be the way someone in Los Angeles might define a good person. I mean, just think about it in politics, right? Democrats would not describe a good person in the same way a Republican would, right? Democrats would say someone who votes for Trump cannot be a good person. And some of the really hardline Republicans would say someone who doesn't vote for Trump cannot be a good person, right? So, so culture gives us these mixed messages about what good and bad people are, this subjective idea. But, but Scripture doesn't teach this. Scripture says those who will face the sudden destruction at Christ's return are those who do not know God and those who have not obeyed the gospel by repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus Christ. On them, sudden destruction comes when Jesus returns. And this is true whether our culture would define them as a good or a bad person. Because what our culture defines as good and bad does not matter to God. God defines right and wrong. And notice how the sudden destruction is described. It is flaming fire that takes vengeance. Verse 9, it is being punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And again, that all sounds really bad. That sounds significantly different than good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That sounds significantly different than as long as you believe something, you'll go to heaven when you die. That sounds significantly different from just be a good moral person and it's all going to work out in the end. What Scripture teaches is vastly Different than anything our culture will ever teach. Anything our natural minds will work up. Go ahead and turn back to 1 Thessalonians 5. Jesus will come back at some point. 
And when he does, he will claim his people as his own. The dead in Christ will rise. Those who are alive will be chawed up with him in the air. And there they will live forever with the Lord. Glory. Hallelujah. That's what the Bible teaches. We must believe that. Jesus will return. And those who have not repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. Those who do not know God. They will face sudden destruction. That will be like flaming fire taking vengeance from the Lord. And everlasting destruction will come upon them. That too is what the Bible teaches. And we must believe it. We must believe all the Bible teaches. We cannot pick and choose what we like, what makes us feel good, what is comfortable. If we are disciples of Jesus and children of God, our job is not to make the word more palatable for a lost person or for our sinful nature. Our job is to believe what Scripture says. About Christ's return. We must believe scripture. That the coming of Christ. Brings comfort for the believer. And judgment. For the unbeliever. And then thirdly. We have to redeem the time. Until Christ returns. Sudden destruction comes upon them. And they shall not. Escape. Now this means. No unbeliever escapes the judgment on the day of the Lord. Again, this is a frequent teaching when it talks about the day of the Lord. Amos is one of my favorite pastors that talks about this. He says, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and met a bear. Or he went into a house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him picture in Amos, the day of the Lord is like someone runs from one life-threatening event to another until eventually the life-threatening events become a life-ending event. It's just a picture that there is no escape. Not one unbeliever will escape the day of the Lord. Not one unbeliever will escape the sudden destruction that comes. Their only escape, their only hope for avoiding what Paul has talked about here is repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus Christ. Apart from that, everything else will fail. Everything else is like running from a lion and running into a bear. It's like making it into your house and resting your hand against the wall only to be bitten by a poisonous snake and dying. It is coming and there is no escape. For the unbeliever. But there is hope through Christ. Scripture says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's where you and I come in on redeeming the time towards this. If they're going to call upon the name of the Lord, they have to believe in the name of the Lord, right? And if they don't believe, they're not going to call. In order to believe on the Lord, they have to to hear about the Lord. In order to hear about the Lord, somebody's got to tell them. I mean, that's what Paul says in Romans 10, 13, and 14. But our, our job, we're here 
to tell people about Jesus. We're here to reach out to the lost and the dying and tell them about Christ's return. I mean, if I really believe what Bible says about what happens to unbelievers at the day of Christ's return, that there is sudden destruction, flaming fire, vengeance from God, eternal destruction. How should I live? Around an unbelieving world. How should I live around my unbelieving friends and family? Should I act as though it's all okay? Should I hope that they're going to be the ones to escape? Should I say they're good people? I'm sure it's going to be fine. They believe something. It's going to be okay. Or should I redeem the time and do all I can to share Jesus with them? So they would be saved. I should share Jesus with them. Peter says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come. Jesus has delayed his return. And that's not accidental, it's intentional. It's not because he's not going to come, he is going to come. His, his delay, his every delay is for one reason. To give more people an opportunity to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and be saved. That's it. Because Jesus knows far better than anyone that at His return, it's all set. Eternal destinies are forever set. There is no second chance after death Or the return of Christ. Luke tells a story. Of a rich man dying and going to hell. And crying out for mercy. For just for Lazarus to come and and dip his finger in water and touch it to his tongue. And, and, And Father Abraham says no one can go from you to us or from us to you. There's a great gulf fixed. Once Jesus returns, once someone dies, that's it. There are no chances after death. There is only life. There are no chances after Christ's return. There is only now. So He delays. He delays to give more chances because He is long-suffering. He is patient, waiting. Again, this is so important because so often... Culture will tell us that God is harsh, angry, and just looking for a way to to judge people. But if that was the case, everybody would die the moment they sinned. But how many of us have sinned and and yet we are alive? God is patient. God is long-suffering. Because He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants them to repent and to be saved. So we are to redeem the time until Jesus comes by sharing the gospel with others. If an unbeliever woke up today and was given the breath of life by God, the Bible says our life and our breath is in His hands, doesn't it? So if they woke up today and God gave them life, why did God give them life? When they are rejectors and in rebellion. It is so they would have an opportunity to hear about Jesus. To believe in Jesus. To call upon Jesus and be saved by Jesus. But it's not just the unbeliever. 
Why did God allow us to wake up today? What was the reason God gave us the breath of life this morning? So that we could tell an unbeliever about Jesus. They could believe in Jesus and they could call upon Jesus and they could be saved by Jesus. That's why, that is one of the main reasons we are here. If we were only saved so that we could go to heaven, we would be saved and immediately raptured or die. But we're not. We are saved and we are sealed and we are filled with the Spirit and we're gifted by the Spirit for what point and what purpose? Not to make much of ourselves. Not to be caught up in the cares and distractions and comfort of this life. But to do all we can to make disciples of all nations. If our unbelieving friends and loved ones wake up tomorrow alive, it is so God can give them that opportunity to hear and believe and call and be saved by Jesus. And if we wake up alive tomorrow, it is not so we can... Piddle and fiddle and waste our lives. It is so we can go to them. Talk to them. Give them an opportunity to hear and believe and call and be saved by Jesus. The coming of Christ is coming. The day the Lord will come. He is patient. He is long-suffering. Eventually, that's going to end. And the day of the Lord will come. For us, we will be caught up together with Him and with our lost and our loved ones who died in Christ, and we will be forever with Him. But every unbeliever, living and dead, will face sudden destruction from the Lord, flaming fire where God takes vengeance upon them for their sin, and they will face sudden destruction and eternal Damnation. What must we do? What must we do today and tomorrow and every day we're given until Christ returns? We must redeem the time. We must take advantage of the opportunities we're given to talk to people about Jesus so they can hear of Him, they can believe in Him, they can call on Him, And they can be saved by Him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. What the return of Jesus means to us depends on where we are with Jesus. If you have repented of your sins and you have believed in Jesus, His return is a source of comfort and hope. But if you have not, His return will bring the sure and severe judgment of God upon you. And there is no escape. You will not escape the judgment of God because you're an American. You will not escape the judgment of God because you came to church today. You will not escape the judgment of God because you voted Democrat or you voted Republican. You'll not escape the judgment of God because you were baptized. You'll not escape the judgment of God because you lived a moral life. 
you will only escape the judgment of God because you repent of your sins and you call upon Jesus to save you. Only Jesus can save you from the judgment to come, but you must call upon Him. No one can do it for you. It is your decision. It is between you and your God. You must make that decision. But if you have repented, you have believed in Jesus, then I gotta ask. Do you believe what Scripture says about the return of Jesus? Do you believe it in a way that you're redeeming the time? There are unbelievers in your circle of influence. And without fail, they will face the sure and severe judgment of God. And they will not escape because they're good moral people. And they will not escape because you love them and they're a part of your family. And they will not escape because they were baptized at one point in church but lived like the devil ever after. And they will not escape because they come to church and appear at church sometimes. They will only escape the sure and severe judgment if they personally repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. But somebody has to tell them this. Because if nobody tells them, they won't believe. And if they don't believe, they won't call. And if they don't call, well, they just can't be saved. And if you won't tell those in your circle of influence, who will? Who will do it if we don't? The reality is whoever we're thinking of, they'll do it. If they're here today, they're thinking of us and they're thinking we'll do it. If we'll not tell them, chances are no one will. How tragic to live in a town, so many churches... To know so many Christians who claim to believe the Bible. And yet just never get to hear the truth about Jesus. Never be given the opportunity to repent and believe. They will still face the sure and severe judgment of God. They'll not escape because nobody told them. They're facing it will just be so much more tragic that nobody told them. I'm going to take time and pray. And if you have never trusted in Jesus, then this is the time to call upon Him. If you have, this is the time to begin to pray about those in your circle of influence. How can you share Jesus with them? What can you do to lay the gospel in their lives? And then pray for courage to do what needs to be done. Let's pray.